Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Ryan! This is Buddy Franklin! This is the greatest showman! Got the handball off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Randall Gazzarioli. Oh, who else? McDonald. Tibble. From inside the centre square. time of day welcome to finals time here on americans watching the footy benjamin and ethan castle coming to you from south san francisco california with our 62nd episode of the season our 134th overall the finals week one preview yeah yeah um no cold open today this this is a hot open oh oh, that's hot ryan you gonna join us Brian Harambe, the footy cat, just jumped up onto Ethan's bed, so he's part of this recording session as well. You can probably hear his bell from time to time. And uh, we're just going to get things going here. I remember we did something last year before we got into the previews for week one, so we're just going to do that again this year. We're going to very quickly ask each other, without prompting, like without any preparation, without any notes or anything, why every team can or can't win the flag, so... uh Shall we, Ethan? Let's just go from top to bottom. Sure. All right, Benjamin, why can Collingwood win the flag? What are you doing, Grian? Grian. No. As Ethan dissuades Grian from attacking the pennants and various things with uh, thumbtacks on his wall, we saw in the early part of the season, really throughout the first three quarters of the season, why Collingwood can win when they have the structure the way they needed to, when they're at full health. You can make an argument that they're the deepest 22 out there. It's rare that they've been beaten the same way twice as well. They know how to move the pieces around the way they need to. Nick Dacos's versatility has been really important in a lot of that. And even though they're going to be without him week one, I think the weather conditions could favor Collingwood. And if they have enough support for Darcy Moore in back, really anything's possible for him. You're already being more wordy than I was going to be. So I'm going to give you the more simple version. Really smooth defensively. They know how to win close games. All right. Good enough on that too. I mean, I'm just skeptical about some of their issues without tall defenders. I was going to ask you, why can't they win the flag? It really does hinge on their defensive structure. Confused about Jeremy Howe's role and things. If they don't figure that out right and have the proper support for Darcy Moore so he doesn't have to take on as many one-on-one contests, that could be a real area where they get exposed. They peak too early, too many injuries. Okay, Ethan then. Why can the Brisbane Lions win the flag? Best forward group, best midfield if they do this right, they only have to win one game at the G. I like that, and also, with that depth in the four or two-thirds, they can lock the ball in the forward half a lot, bring some of their defenders who are capable of kicking long up the ground to help them. The issue, though, is that they will have to go to the G at some point to get there. And really, that's the biggest thing standing in their way. What else do you see as being a barrier to them winning the flag? Don't know how to close out games, play not to lose too early, defense just not good enough. And maybe Devin Robertson isn't going to be as strong with his jumper staying on him. All right, uh, Port Adelaide. 
Port's transition game is as strong as anybody. And at contest, if you don't have somebody going right up with Sam Powell Pepper, he can bruise through you and punish you every single time. Great midfield. Alir's a great guy to have leading your defense. More than enough forwards who can kick goals. But if they can't lock stuff in the forward half like we see the Brisbane Lions do, they have a lot more problems defensively other than Alir. It's a question of Tom Jonas, Trent McKenzie, if he's healthy. What else is a problem for them, Ethan? Not enough good defenders past Alir. Luck could run out. And they'll only have one home final, regardless of whether it's a semi or a prelim. The biggest thing going for Melbourne, I think they it really all goes through Max gone. And so that's going to be my positive for them. If he is on his game, if he gets five or six score involvements, it's going to be hard to stop them. You'll have to keep a man on him pretty much everywhere. That could also open up things in other parts of the ground. Ethan, what's your biggest tick for Melbourne? Great defensive unit from top to bottom. It's been a premiership defense. It can be a premiership defense again. They have a midfield that can compete with anyone. And while there's no one forward that you look at as he's got to be the guy or we have to stop him, they have a bunch of guys that can give you three to five goals on any given day. And it's been a while since Kazi's gone off, and I think we're due for that. Bailey Fridge's return is really big in that regard as well. Five goals straight last round. Why can't Melbourne win the flag, though? Too stagnant, relying on gone to be otherworldly instead of just really good, when this year, for the most part, he's just been good. That's the other side of that coin that I was going for, yeah. Benjamin, why do you, what do you think stops Melbourne from winning the flag? Other than the issues with Gone, there are certain matchups where you could really take advantage of Stephen May and Jake Lever. We saw that at times late in the season. And if they have to battle it out in the rain against Collingwood for the qualifying final, that could be tough for them. And for whoever loses that qualifier, they've got to likely go through the gamut to make the grand final in the first place. The amount of rain in the forecast, it doesn't look that bad now. It seems to have improved. There's going to be some rain at some point, but I don't think it's going to be like this you know, torrential downcore like we've seen in Adelaide. All right, but also, you know, oftentimes tough finals, you do need to have that one guy. And I'm not sure, especially forward, who that one guy can be if Fritch gets the attention he deserves. Going down to the bottom four now, why can the Blues win the flag? I feel like this is an easy answer. Patrick Cripps hasn't reached his full form this year. Wiedering and McGovern lead a premiership caliber defense. Nick Newman's been great. They've got big time forward targets. I don't know how anyone stops Charlie Kern out. All of that, and also, they rode a nine-game win streak before resting some guys in the finale against the Giants. They're one of the most informed teams in the competition, and if Harry Mackay can find a little bit extra as well, that's going to be even scarier, even if he can just be an outside mark for them. Why can't the Blues win the flag, Ethan? They peaked already. McGovern's due to come back down to earth. Tom DeConing's due to come back down to earth. Nick Newman's due to come back down to earth. They've just already played their best football. That's definitely a concern I have as well. You know, you talked about Cripps maybe not having peaked yet. Maybe he's just already peaked for this season, and maybe that's not going to be enough, especially against some really tough contested teams. Why will St. Kilda win the flag? I feel like they're the most underestimated team out of this whole finals group, and at their best, especially early in the season, they were the, one of the best transitioning teams of the competition. They know how to play fast, and they know how to lock it down with Ross Lyon as coach. I think this is a pretty versatile list, and that could be something that plays to their advantage. Cal Wilkie is a top-tier defender. He's got some other really good ones with him, like Josh Battle. What's a battle? Rowan Marshall's been one of the best Ruckman in the competition. The veterans like Bradley Hill still have it. Max King's been ridiculous. Max King. They've shown that they don't just have to win by slowing teams down, although they can definitely suck the life out of you in the fourth quarter. 
They can also move pretty fast in transition, and Marcus Winhager could be used to tag opposing stars. Having said that, one of my issues is that he hasn't done that yet this year, and maybe that's just not in Ross Lyon's MO. That could be something really important come this first elimination final with him going up against Tom Green, for example. It's a versatile list, but the other side of that is maybe Ross isn't getting the most out of their versatility. And if Max King misses his first set shot, watch out. What stops the Saints from winning the flag other than, I mean, you could go obvious. Forward group's not great past King. Young guys have played out of their mind and and are due to come back to earth, whether that's Caminiti, Wanganin Millera, Filippo. And the midfield just isn't up to par with some of the others, as much as I like Mason Wood and Seb Ross. And Jack Higgins, who uh, could have some collar-popping potential in that first game. Why can the Greater Western City Giants win their first flag? I love that we're even asking this question. Their defense is insane. Sam Taylor's been awesome. Tom Green and Steven Canelio lead a midfield that can go toe-to-toe with anybody. Toby Green's been great. Jake Riccardi's in rare form. Brent Daniels is really good. And Adam Kingsley's shown himself to be a damn good coach. They can go on runs because of the way they pressure. Benjamin, why can the Giants win the flag? If they're at full health in defense, I can believe in them. There's questions about Sam Taylor's hamstring, as well as Finn Callahan with his Achilles. Also, in addition to Tom Green and Steven Canelio, surprised you didn't mention Josh Kelly, who I think has had a really resurgent year there. And Toby Green could also factor into center bounces as well. You look back to the first Sydney Derby this year, and that was one of the things that really helped turn this game around. They're much better two-way runners than they were last year. The style works for the whole list. Oh, yeah. I also want to mention Callum Brown. He's awesome. He's a forward. Why can't the Giants win the flag? They're just not able to keep up with some of these other teams. They're going to be relying on a guy like Nick Haynes to be out of his mind. Jesse Hogan's set shot kicking. He had that one really good game, but you can't expect that every week. Jake Riccardi played out of his mind. And as good of a year as Kieran Briggs has had, how's he supposed to bring it against the likes of a Max Gone or even a Rowan Marshall as they're going to be doing this week? It's a young list, and that could definitely play to their disadvantage with the lack of finals experience for a lot of the list. Yeah, the best 18 to 22 players are strong, but perhaps, unfortunately, they've already peaked. And I have some questions about their depth come September. And uh, hey, it's September. All right, last one. Why can the Sydney Swans win the flag? I could just give a two-word answer if I really want to, and it's Errol Golden. If the Swans somehow become the first team to win for eight, he is very likely your Norm Smith medalist and your Gary Ayers Award winner. Already at his young age, the team goes through him. If you have him doing his thing, Chad Warner having a little better form, James Robottom being the tackling beast that he is, the midfield can win just about any matchup, and they have a good variety of forward targets. Not to mention some defensive depth that people might even forget about a bit. Remember how strong Robbie Fox was last year? What are your thoughts, Ethan? I think they can win it because they probably don't deserve to be in finals. And because there is no God, they're going to win it because they don't even deserve to be there. Callum Mills is really good. Nick Blakey's really good. You mentioned Errol Golden, uh, Ollie Florent. The tall Fords have been quiet the last few weeks. We're going to see better out of the likes of Joel Lamarty. And Tom McCartan's going to do it for Patty. That would be a great storyline there. Also, just would be funny to see the Swans win it without Buddy now. What stands in the Swans' way? Well, some things that stand in their way. What are they? I mean, first off, they're not going to get to play a single home final. Second, their forward group outside of Tom Papley hasn't been all that good lately. It's been a down year for Callum Mills. James Robottom can only tackle so many people. And frankly, their defense hasn't been great. It hasn't been the best of years for Lloyd, for Fox. Lewis Melikin has helped somewhat with that, but they can get exposed at times. I was kind of prompting you with talking about Fox, among others. So 
Glad you mentioned that part of things. The one-on-one matchups can be really difficult for them. And at a time of year where you often need to tag, Ryan Clark is someone who tends to find himself out of the best 22. And he sometimes doesn't even get in as the sub. All right, segment done. On the actual previews. Seriously, though, like, before we get into these games, tagging is going to become even more important this time of year, I think. And there are some teams that have the right guys to do it, and some that don't. You know, looking at this first matchup here, Collingwood and Melbourne in the first qualifying final, if Bo McCreary's good to go, if he's in, I would love to see him as a tagging type, because he could do that sort of thing. I guess Collingwood, they don't really have a true tagger. I mean, Quainer can run with dudes, but maybe that's a way to maximize some of Tom Mitchell's efforts as well? Yeah, I think that actually makes the most sense. All right, qualifying final one, because you seem to really like differentiating between it being the first qualifying final and second qualifying final, not over like when it's played, but based on which seed it is, which I think is dumb. But more importantly, it's number one Collingwood hosting number four Melbourne at the G. Yes, it's home for both of those teams, but this will be a Collingwood home game, no doubt. This gets underway on Thursday, September 7th, also known as tomorrow. Or today, by the time this is probably uploaded, 2.20 a.m. Pacific Time, 5.20 a.m. Eastern Time, and 7.20 p.m. Local Time, it'll be a Fox Sports 2 game. In fact, all four of Week 1's finals will be on Fox Sports 2. And you know what? We timed this very well for how long we were waiting to do this, because we got lists. And guess what? McCreary is in. McCreary, Darcy Moore, Nathan Murphy all make their way back in. Jack Gidevin will be the sub. So no Billy Frampton, no John Noble. He has played all 23 home and away games, one of five pies to do that, but he does not get in for finals week one. It seems like he's been omitted to make way for Oleg Markov to stay in, which I don't think Markov is ever really ahead of him on the pecking order this year. So that's, I, I that's think, an interesting decision. I think a lot of it's making up for the absence of Nick Dacos because Markov can provide a similar sort of run at times, especially in the back half. I would not be shocked if Markov comes out for Nick Dacos come their second final, whether that's week two or three. On the demon side, Michael Hibbard and Tom McDonald are in. Hibbard playing in the back, McDonald listed at half four, kind of taking Jake Belcham's spot there after he did his ACL. That's a gutting injury considering how Melksham missed out on the 2021 grand final, was part of their reserves premiership last year. Now can't go in September here. Daniel Turner omitted, that's no surprise. We don't have a confirmed sub for them, do we? No, it's, uh, I have a feeling it's going to be James Jordan, though, because... Uh, That would make sense. The other options are Brody Grundy, who Simon Goodwin has said it's totally fine that he's off meeting with other clubs this week, and then Bailey Laurie and Adam Tomlinson, but James Jordan seems to be by far the most logical pick. Oh yeah, uh, Mason Cox, in as the main ruck for Collingwood. Finals Coxie is here. But, I mean, you also do have Darcy Cameron. He's going to start on the bench, but he's in there. Cameron and McStay in the forward line together is a big plus for the Pies. You know, we didn't mention all the reasons why they can win the flag, but that's a big one right there if they can have their talls work together. And if Mason can have that connection that he had with Scott Pendlebury the past couple weeks, the last weeks of the home and away season, that will also be a big advantage for him. I'm a little surprised that they didn't put Ginevan in the lineup in full ahead of, say, Will Hoskin Elliott, and then maybe, I don't know, make Noble the sub or make Frampton the sub. I know Frampton's not the fastest guy, but if he could play in a few different roles. We've seen some tall subs for Collingwood before. Mason was one of them a couple weeks ago, and that worked out really well. 
I'm a little bit surprised that even considering the wetness that we'll have, he's opting for the tolls there when the contest can really be played on the ground. Just we get the current forecast for Melbourne as we're recording this uh, around 6.30 p.m. Melbourne time on Wednesday. Can expect some rain during the game, not as steady as was initially forecast. And then uh, for Friday, you can have some likely subsiding before the Carlton-Sydney elimination final. So these teams only met once this year, back in round 13, King's birthday. I watched this one in Maryland, a 66-62 Demons win. They could have won by a lot more, considering they kicked 8-AT. Yeah, a very rare scoreline there. Whereas we saw in Collingwood's first loss, Holy Thursday at the Gabba, Brisbane brought numbers to the contest. Melbourne decided, now nah, let's get just our best guys in and then take advantage of numbers on the outside. I imagine they'll use that blueprint again here. I mean, I think it's an idea that can work against really any team. You know, that's pretty sound logic. When we're going into one-on-ones and two-on-twos, we want our best guys. And then when we send the ball out to the masses, then we kind of go strength in numbers and just kind of kind of the power of the majority. The power within? Not quite. Damn. Have you used that clip before? No. Damn. You want to play it anyway? The power within. The power within. Jack Vining won the Neil Danaher Trophy, leading that contested effort. And remember, they did that without Clayton Oliver. That was near the early part of his hamstring issues where he finally came back in. The power within! Yeah! And that snapped a, a couple streaks relating to playing Collingwood at the G. That was big for Melbourne going into this as well. What I also remember about that game was that Brody Grundy was in, and so he and Gon were able to split the ruck time. Maybe that's something that can get to Gon maybe some fatigue from taking more of those contests. I imagine then that it'll be Jacob Van Royen as the second ruck, and that'll, that could be a mismatch there. I mean, here's the thing. On one hand, you could worry about fatigue. On the other, this is going to be your first game in two weeks, and you're playing to not play next week. So I wouldn't be too worried about fatigue, honestly. Last time these teams met in the finals, the elimination final in 1989. It was still called the VFL then. Oh, of course. Great game. I remember that. Yeah, I, I decided to look up the last finals meeting for each of these teams just for some info about it. It was a 23-point Demons victory at Waverly Park. Darren Bennett scored four goals. And I find him just interesting because he's really the first Australian punter to get into the NFL after 102 games of the AFL made the switch to American football, and was a two-time Pro Bowl punter with the San Diego Chargers. Not to be confused with Arsenal star Darren Bett. And, you know, thinking about all the Australian kickers and punters that have come after him, including some of the ones that we know, especially me seeing them from my time at Cal, it's pretty cool to see just how influential this, this one person, Darren Bennett, has been in all of that. It's gotten to the point now where the son of a 400 gamer is punting for a college here. Dustin Fletcher's son, Mason. Oh, wait, we can't go further without talking about that Tulsa guy. Yes, Angus Davies. He's Grian's friend. Like, there's photos of them celebrating after the grand final. On his bio, it lists Grian as his favorite athlete. I am officially a Tulsa football fan. If somehow Grian ends up coming to the game this week in Seattle, which I think is unlikely because he was probably expecting to still be playing at this time of year, I would honestly go up to Seattle. Because Tulsa's playing at Washington this weekend. Would be one of my more ridiculous adventures. But to meet Brian Myers, it would be worth it. Now, looking ahead at the Tulsa football schedule, 
if Grian's coming to a game this year, I would think they're probably not looking at one in Tulsa. Maybe the October 7th game at FAU, you know, go to Miami. Maybe November 11th at Tulane. Yeah, I think those are the most likely. I guess maybe the SMU game, October 28th in Dallas. It's still weird thinking about these schools and thinking, oh yeah, Cal's going to be at the same conference as a couple of them. This is what this show is now. It's breaking down which college football game Brian Myers is most likely to go see his friend play in. We see like some good off-season AFL crossover with American football. I mean, Patrick Cripps, was was he in the owner's box last year at a Patriots game? I believe so. It would be really funny if just like by, by chance, you know, some players are here and they're going to see a Warriors game and they just end up as my Uber passenger after. Um, I never went to Uber Jabber. That's like the funniest possible scenario. Since 1994, the Demons and Pies have played 38 of 40 meetings at the MCG. The only ones that haven't been there were because of COVID. A strange virus from a foreign land. That's an actual quote. Collingwood favored by a point and a half, which is 50% more than you get just for having a crack. I think that's a fair line. I mean, a lot of factors here also with, with the weather conditions and things like that. It's, I just... I would favor Collingwood by more, but then you look at the fact that Melbourne won their only meeting this year and seemed to have a pretty sound approach to doing it. Also, they got Clayton Oliver back in there to help even more with some of their contests. Oliver, it's amazing that they won so much without Oliver. Really means that Agus Rayshaw helped lift in contests as well, whereas thinking about 2021, he was more of a halfback flank player. So the depth is there for him. They have magnets that they're able to move around. That's another reason why I believe in the Demons and why I would still kind of tip them here, I think. I know what you said. It sounded like they have maggots to move around. I think that's our title. I think that's our title. I don't know. We've already said some good, like, quotable stuff. When I go back and edit, I'll make a list of all of them, as I usually do. But yeah, Collingwood by a point and a half seems like the appropriate line. So that's Thursday night footy. Friday night's also at the G. The normal Friday night time, 7.50 p.m. local. For Americans, 5.50 a.m. Eastern, 2.50 a.m. Pacific. The first elimination final between Carlton and Sydney, or the 5-8 versus eight game. It's the Blues' first finals appearance in a decade. And the last time they were in finals, they got kind of humiliated by the Swans. Really, the 24-point margin doesn't suggest it, but the fact that they were held scoreless in a quarter in that game is humiliating enough. That 2013 third quarter was the first time the Blues have been held scoreless in a finals quarter since 1959, and I went back into the research on that. Hey, that was a great final, 1959. Remember that one well. Luke Parker had three goals in that game for the Swans in 2013. He's older than you think. I knew he was part of their old premiership team. Is it that he just plays younger? I think it's just that, and you think of this team as a whole as being pretty young. Yeah, I mean, he was a second-year player when he was part of that flag team in 2012. He's 30 years old now. Yeah, he doesn't play like it. He could crack 300 games at the end of next year. Pretty durable player if he's able to get up to that number pretty quickly. Really, it's been suspensions that have stood in his way that I think. Their one meeting this year was back in round 11, really at the peak of Carlton's problems. Sydney won 77-51. Played decently well. It was a good game for Nick Blakey after he had had a rough start to the season, but... The the reaction to that game, I think, from really around the entire football world was, holy shit, Carlton sucked. And it was it was a fun time. It was a Friday nighter that round, by the way. It was it was a simpler time. 
Yeah, that that was the uh, the Mario Rook game, and that was on seven, as that game often is. You know, one of the big pieces of the Sir Doug Nichols round, which we've gone on about how much we love the way that indigenous representation is is worked into the game, and it's so much better than the acknowledgement of indigenous cultures here in the United States, which is often non-existent. It's basically like a couple of teams will wear like turquoise because that's considered like the color to represent Native American culture because of some of the turquoise jewelry, and that's it. It's like specifically a New Mexico thing. I mean, Florida State's also worn it. I think Oregon State has, but it, it we could do more. We could do a hell of a lot more. I would love to see some teams collaborate with designers like you see in the AFL. Really, the thoughts that we had after that game were, like, you were really onto this as Nick Blakey goes, the Sydney Swans go. That was especially true in the earlier part of the season. And then the Blues in that round 11 game kicked six goals, 15. Can we give a moment to Asian representation and entertainment this year? Major strides were made. Everybody controls the podcast. There was a lot of poor ball use around that time for the Blues as well. Adam Saad was not allowed to carry and kick nearly as much. That's something that's been remedied, although his inordinate number of unnecessary bounces has not changed. Like, I I don't understand. Does he think that if he bounces it, like, a couple times, it just gets stored up and he can run 30 meters? No, if you bounce the ball five times in 10 meters, you go to heaven. Or maybe just the Wizards will hear you. You know what I really liked was in, forget which game, it was a relatively recent Bulldogs game. I don't think it was against Chuang, it might have been, but someone was running, it was either Bond or Bailey Williams, and had so much space that he basically just like tapped the ball on the ground with both his hands like he was scoring a, a try, and then just kept running. We, we've seen players do that before. I think it's the funniest thing when you have the space to do that, and I mean, it is smart to do. What we haven't seen this year, I was waiting for like Connor McKenna to do the, the solo thing for Gaelic football, where instead of really bouncing it, he just kicks it up to himself. McKenna and a few other Irish players have done that before. It can be something useful, you know, when you don't have much space for it, because you can be called for holding the ball when you bounce it. That wasn't always the case, though. There's just some fun stuff with bounces. I'd love the idea just like, no, you bounce it a bunch in the back, you don't have to bounce it again. Like, it gets stored up. I mean, you know, if the rule said just one bounce for every 15 meters, it wouldn't say how you have to distribute those bounces. I would be... That would be really fun. Make the umpires do math on the fly. Like, okay, he's bounced it five times in 15 meters. He can run the next 60 meters without bouncing. This just feels like a total airbud clause type thing where it's just like, hey, rules don't say I can't do that. He's right. Ain't no rules in the dog can't play basketball. I call it the airbud clause. Some people think of it as like the monopoly clause. Basically, doesn't say I can't. Which player would be the most likely to try and bend the rules like that? Well, who have we compared to like Lance Stevenson? Who would be the kind of guy to like, I mean, I guess Sam Frost would be kind of the low effort answer there. Braden Maynard's kind of a low effort answer as well. I don't know. That doesn't seem like him. You just think of him as just like going really hard at everything. Yeah, I feel like, who? which would be like the goofy kind of player to do it? Honestly, Mason. <laughs> Especially just because like he didn't know about bouncing at first, so he just ran with the ball one of the first times he was out of Collingwood training. Let's see, uh... I, don't know, I feel like Zach Tui could kind of do something like that. I'm trying to think of who else is just like a shit disturber. Honestly, like if he were playing so often in the midfield, I say Chad Warner seems like the type. It just seems goofy. I say like maybe Lockie Neal. Nah, Neal seems like he's too straightforward with things. God, who is it I was thinking of as like, you know, I made the comparison talking about like Lance Stevenson blowing in someone's ear or, you know, like someone tying somebody's shoes together or, or just 
untying him with the free throw line like he does. Or was J.R. Smith did that as well, I think. Yeah. Who who's like the most Lance Stevenson J.R. Smith guy? This is actually a really good question. And something just I'm gonna pose to the general public as well. Especially like out of the finals crop, who could it be? No, out of out of all 18 teams. Zorko? Ooh, yes. There we go. I like that. I'm trying to think like who else could fit into that. I mean, Ginevin's just a shit stir. Yeah, but not in that sense. I, I like the idea of Zorko. I would love to see, you know, they call him for, for running too far, and he goes up to the umpire and says, no, using the equation 15B equals M, where B represents the number of bounces, and M represents the number of meters gained. It serves the whole thing like that. I, I really want this to happen. I feel like we need to make a video with this now, or, or like, we could totally do this. I could see Eggfooty doing it too, especially as a Lions supporter. Zorko would be the right guy for this, though, yeah. And then you, who would you have, like, jumping in to, like, support his cause in there? I don't know, Bailey? Nah. Danaher? Danaher. Danaher. He did something really funny a couple weeks ago. I don't remember what it was, but it was funny. We're not, wow, we, we haven't really talked about, like, much of what we expect from this game, and maybe that's just because of how we talk about the whole rapid fire thing. No, this had a lot to do with Carlton versus Sydney. Oh, yeah, completely. This... Okay, I actually just had to look at the notes over. So we were talking about Adam Saad. That's why, that's how we got to that. Okay. Yeah. Um, and we don't have the list for this game yet. So should mention that Blake Akers is a test after being subbed out with a collarbone injury in round 24. I think Carlton really need him. I think he's a super unheralded player just considering he's kind of been Mr. Consistent all year. And especially with somebody needing to match up on the outside with Errol Golden, especially. That could be a real worry if the Blues don't have him. Ollie Hollins could play up on the wing a bit, but he he can't match up against Errol like I can see Blake Agers doing. Golden could just run over him, and I wouldn't be surprised. Hollins, that is, as much as we like him. But how will Errol match up with Hedwig and Pidgewidgen? Hedwig and Pigwidgen? I don't think that's how it's pronounced, but Harry Potter. Well, uh, what about Hermes? I think that's another one of the old Weasley owls. I don't know, when I think of Hermes, I think of the guy on Futurama with the kind of annoying voice. Oh, Hermes Conrad, the bureaucrat. I mean, nobody has a more annoying voice than Zoidberg, but... All right, who would the Zoidberg of the AFL be? Uh, well, who eats everything? I guess Matt Rowell, because he eats grass? Yeah, but I also don't see Matt Rowell going... <laughs> it would be really funny if we find out, considering how much Matt Rowell loves footy... He listens to this podcast, and then he just starts going, whoop, 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 whoop. <laughs> we need more episodes that go like this. This is a good episode. Uh, Justin McInerney's a test for the Swans. He hurt his calf back in round 20. Another player there who I could see helping on the outside a bit. I find this game almost as hard to tip as the first one. Carlton favored by 12 and a half. That seems high. Is it something about playing in Victoria that does that? Is it that somebody's got to match up with Charlie Kerno and that, well, who can match up with him is the real question. I think it's just that Carlton have been so hot and their only loss in the last two and a half months came when they were resting a lot of guys. But I don't know. I would, I would probably put this like, what, six and a half at most? Yeah, I find it hard even putting it outside a single goal. The Swans won six in a row before dropping one to the Demons, although they had an easier schedule in that time, I'd say. The only finalist they beat during that time was the Giants, and you could argue that they shouldn't have even won that sixth in a row. 
I'm just really looking forward to these games getting underway. It's fun getting to talk about them like this. It's also just, we've had a lot of fun with the prep for this in the first place, clearly. You know, here here's the thing before we take our break. In a way, I love Final Study because we get the best of the best. We get to really focus on and digest each individual game. In a way, I kind of hate it because we don't have games going on all weekend. It's it's conflicting. I like being able to sleep sometimes. A reminder that we are on Twitter and YouTube at Americans Footy. That's where you can get our footy discussion if you don't want to actually listen to us, which I can understand. It's annoying to listen to the same voices all the time. I'm on Twitter individually at BenjaminHK01. I'm on Twitter at Castle Media. Grian's on Instagram at CatNameGrian. And he's curled up next to Ethan right now. So I had a question as we're coming back from uh, the break here, you know, thinking about the, uh, the bounce every 15 meters roll. If you can store bounces, if you bounce the ball in the goal square after a kick-in, is it or is it not play on? Could Adam Saad and Jake Lever and Tim English have even more fun that way? Like, bounce it just a bunch of times in the goal square and then run the entirety of the field. Seriously, why was Tim English doing that? Why was Tim English taking that kick-in in Launceston? I have so many questions still. Like, Ed Richards is the guy to do that all season for them. We've seen him do it. We've seen him just run out and go half the length of the oval. That alone is a very good reason that that team is not playing finals. And why, if you want to listen to stuff about them, you're going to have to go back and listen to our last couple episodes. Yeah, if you didn't catch those, we did post-mortems for the 10 clubs who have already departed this season with our two-part So You Didn't Crack the Eight specials. In subsequent round previews, we'll also be doing post-mortems for the teams that bow out the previous week. We got the Saturday games to still preview. The first of those is the second elimination final, St. Kilda and the Giants. At the G, we were wondering for a while, are the Saints actually going to get a home final at the G? And I think Marvel's booked for some other event, which is part of it, but also I think might be UFC saying I saw ESPN was interviewing. I, I saw like a state. I saw like a stadium golf thing as well that people were talking about. Like, remember, I didn't they do that at the Giants ballpark? A lot of stadiums have done it. A lot of major league parks have done it. Yeah, but you said Israel Adesanya was getting interviewed? Oh, yeah. He's facing Sean Strickland this weekend. I thought that would be at, like, Rod Laver. It's, oh, it's in Sydney at Kudos Bank Arena? Okay, but it's not at Marvel. But there will be something at Marvel. I guess it's golf. Yeah, Kudos Bank Arena... That's where the Sydney Kings play. Yeah, golf is being done at Marvel like the 14th to the 24th. So I assume they're already transforming some of that. I find that to be a really funny reason why the Saints and Giants are playing at the G. I I think at the same time, that might not entirely be why. It's funny if you Google Marvel Stadium events, Google thinks that the game is being played there. And then you click on it and it says Saints-Giants elimination final confirmed for MCG. Well, what does Google know? This is the Saints' first final at the G since the 2010 Grand Final replay. That's kind of wild, though. I guess they've only had a couple of home finals since. Their 2011 eliminator against Sydney was at Marvel. And then their 2020 finals, those were both in Queensland. I have no idea what the crowd size is going to be like for this game. I hope it gets over 50 to validate this game being at the G. I hope Saints fans show out in droves. I hope the Orange Teams fans show out. I would love for like that interstate supporters crew, like the expansion team supporters crew, if that exists, to just show up. You know who should be at, well, 
I guess it wouldn't be possible for him to be at every final, just to how how much time there is. There wouldn't be enough time to get between Melbourne and Brisbane in time, but you know which guy I think would be a great person to have at these? Who? All teams should merge. Oh, the uh, main character of the Gather Round. I miss that guy. We never found out who he was. Mr. All Teams Should Merge. Like, he had the, the custom jumper and everything. Love this dude. I hope he resurfaces for the next Gather Round. And the next one. I want to meet him. And the next one. And the next one. Oh, by the way, the Saints are going to be wearing their uh, anniversary jumpers for this, so Jack Higgins could have some collar-popping fun. I never think of finals as a time to wear, or really in any sport, playoffs and throwback stuff. Well, some teams do adopt alternate jerseys for the playoffs, especially yeah, alternate off- jerseys, but not. I mean, for the 150, that's a pretty special one, though. And it's not like it's very different from their regular jumpers. It's just like the collar and slightly different treatment of, you know, having the logo on front. I'm fine with it. It's not like people are going to notice that much from way up there in the stands. So this one gets underway Friday night here at 10.20 p.m., so Saturday morning at 1.20 a.m. on the East Coast, 3.20 p.m. local time, which is normally a Sunday start time rather than a Saturday start time, but we don't get Sunday finals footy. And it'll also be at 8.20 a.m. on Saturday in Comoros. The random country generator strikes again, huh? Yeah, um, I liked when... Their president photobombed a handshake between uh, Netanyahu and Mahmoud Abbas. Oh, I remember this. He was just looking, just like super awkward. They're just standing there. It's a great photo. That's like everything you need to know about Kalmaros is the uh, photobomb. Also, very colorful flag. When the Giants and Saints played in round 10 this year at the Sydney Showground, the Saints won by 12 after... Something pretty scary happened in that game. Mitch Owens got concussed with a very violent knee to the head. We thought he got fucked the fuck up. I mean, he got stretchered off. We thought he was, like, seriously injured. And then he was just chilling on the bench and watching the second half. And I believe was back two weeks later. This is like the opposite of a delayed concussion that ends up being really bad. You know, like, it looked devastating and he was fine. I'm glad people were making a case for Owens to get the rising star this year. I think the right guy got it, but Owens has had a damn good year. This was around the time where the Saints were starting to cool off a bit, but also Jackson Clare was playing more forward at this point. Max King was back and he hit his first set shot, so of course he would score three more goals. Was that his first appearance of the season? Yeah, it was, because I remember he kicked 13 goals in his first four games before Jack Payne held him goalless, and that's what made that all the more impressive. I bet Sam Taylor could have done a better job on him. He was sorely missed there. And he's a test with his hamstring injury that made him a laid out round 24. It kind of gave Charlie Curno the Coleman there. And I was concerned about the Giants' chances of winning that game. You thought they were completely dead. You weren't concerned. Well, I thought Curno would just go off, but he only had three. Also, remember, you seem to forget, like, all the other people the Blues were resting. Like Crips, I know. Still, round 10 was also Kieran Briggs' first game of the season. We took note of him then because of how he matched up pretty well with Rowan Marshall. And so they'll be able to rehash that matchup on Saturday. The Saints have won four straight meetings, and this is the first ever finals meeting between the two clubs. Not surprising considering that you've got one club that hasn't played a lot of finals and one club that's relatively new. Not even Bar Mitzvah age yet. It's not been bar mitzvahed, by the way, or 
you don't get bar mitzvah, you become a bar mitzvah. I will be like a complete dick about that. Yeah, you become a bar or bat mitzvah. I'm I'm more okay with someone saying they have a bar mitzvah because, you know, it is also the name of the ceremony, but you don't get bar mitzvah. That's not a thing. It's not passive. This will be the first time in Saints history that they've had more finals appearances than wooden spoons. 28 finals appearances to 27 wooden spoons. They 27 did. wooden spoons. I mean, they they were just one of the worst clubs at the very beginning. They didn't win a single game for the first three years. Again, it's like kind of amazing that they still exist and that they've survived everything that's happened to them. I think that was like the biggest takeaway from, you know, when they had their anniversary game at the G was like, it's just a testament to survival. It's yeah, instead of like the stop giving me your toughest battles, how are you still alive? I mean, I guess it's a little like that. It's more like a, why are you still here? But like, I'm glad they're still here. You know what the other nice thing is? If they advance in the finals, they won't have a final on Yom Kippur. Could they have one on Rosh Hashanah, though? Yeah, I guess so. Oh, yeah. We get weekend holidays this year. Well, yeah, Rosh Hashanah starts, I think, Friday at sundown. A week from Friday. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. on a Friday at sundown is the point. Uh, injury news for the Saints. Seb Ross is going to be a test. He hurt his hamstring round 23 against Geelong. We don't know yet about Zach Jones, who did his knee in round 20. Or Dan McKenzie, who last played in round 13, dealt with a calf injury. Really been dealing with that for a long time. Now, I don't expect either of them to get in. We know that, sadly, Jack, 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 Jack Hayes is having some work done on his knee, getting that cleaned out because there was a concern after round 24. Glad he managed to come back in and kick the goal. Team really got around him bad. That was good. If he's, you know, ready to go at the start of next season, can provide some ruck support for Marshall and allow him to have more of that roving role more easily. I'm glad that even though he's been really the main ruck all year with few other options, unless you're throwing, you know, Josh Battle or someone like that in there, that he's managed to get out on other parts of the Oval and have an impact. And that's probably going to be necessary for the Saints to compete throughout this final series, however long they go. The Giants are going to be waiting on news on Sam Taylor, as I mentioned, along with Finn Callahan, who hasn't played since round 20, dealing with the ongoing Achilles issue. And then Toby Bedford's suspension appeal is set for 2 p.m. on Thursday. Bedford has been one of the most impactful trade acquisitions this year, which I did not expect. I mean, I knew he'd get the steadier time. I didn't realize just how important he'd be to their structure along with a resurgent Brent Daniels. I said this before about the Giants. I love that, you know, small forwards last year, it was just Toby Reed. Now he's got a whole bunch of people working with him, and that allows the captain himself to be more versatile, can play deeper, can end up going to the center square at times. But thinking the odds of a triple Toby are unlikely because I can't see a world where Toby Bedford's suspension is overturned and Toby McMullen is in the lineup. I mean, he could be a sub. I would find it more likely to be Nick Haynes or Josh Fahey, maybe. Yeah, I feel like those are your most likely sub. It depends on Bedford's suspension and Callahan's health there. The Giants are currently four and a half point favorites at the time of recording. I love the thought of the Giants winning a final. I think this is a matchup that suits them. I mean, I feel like this is a game that I have to think about more and talk myself through, and then I'll come up with a, a real opinion. But, you know, the Saints playing fast... You feel like you would play into the Giants' hands, and then the Saints would probably try to slow it down instead, and I don't know what comes out. I can see the Giants succeeding more on the inside, especially if Callahan's out. 
and then the Saints on the outside with the help of Jack Sinclair and the Zion Wagonin Miller are starting passages to the outside as well. So watch for that to to be the case there. You know, if the Saints win, I think it could be more on the outside and using more of the wings. Brad Hill was a big plus in that round 10 fixture, but he actually did more inside. So I don't know. I think wherever Brad Hill is deployed is going to be a watch here. I think this is going to be a really hard game where to say like, oh yeah, we can draw all this off of an earlier meeting. In fact, I think with all four finals, I think it's really hard to do that. Between the different ins and outs, the time between those meetings, I mean, I think that's even more the case for the last final when they haven't played each other since round one. That's right. Our final final of the week is the second qualifying final, Brisbane hosting Port Adelaide at the GABA. This one will be Saturday at 7.25 p.m. local time, 6.55 p.m. in South Australia, 5.25 a.m. on the East Coast of the U.S., and 2.25 a.m. for us on the West Coast. I guess for this game, as much as we'll be usually paying attention to the 7 feeds, I look forward to Fox Buddies coverage as well, because I'm sure that'll involve a certain three-time premiership player with the Brisbane Lions, a certain Mr. Alistair Lynch. And Lynch had... We'll call it an important role to play the last time these teams met in finals. It hasn't been since the 2004 Grand Final, where Port won their first and currently only AFL flag by 40 points. They stopped the lines from a four-peat. Had Lynchy played on, he would have been suspended for 10 games for various fighting and striking incidents. Simon Black and Jonathan Brown got suspended as well. It was after that that the AFL decided that penalties in the Grand Final are going to be worth double going forward, and we haven't had a huge grand final brawl since, so that's clearly worked. You know, I know that's a good thing, especially when, you know, you look at the grand final as, like, this big dignified celebration. And the biggest way to promote the sport abroad as well. But, if you want to promote the sport to an American audience, like, holy fuck, look at these crazy people, you would have things like this in every grand final. You would have, like, huge fights. This was also the first grand final between two non-Victorian clubs, and it happened the next two years as well, with the Swans and Eagles having their two meetings. Man, we're just we're just watching these clips right now. You can see the great fight. Yeah, you can see Lynchy and Daryl Wakelin, among others, going at it. Yeah, I I again I get why you want to discourage it, but if you're trying to sell the game, you don't have to shy away from it. Okay, so if the Giants make the grand final. Could we see Toby Green just try to fight everyone and get suspended for two years? I don't think the new Toby Green does that, honestly. No, I don't think so. I don't think all Australian Captain Toby will do that. He's a born-again captain. He's a born-again giant. All right, as for this game, yeah, they played round one. Port crushed the Lions in the third quarter, eight goals to one. They ended up winning that game by 53 we were thinking like, ooh, the Lions defense might have some real issues here. And some of those problems did show up, but they were really trying to figure out their structure without Marcus Adams still. That was before they really established Jack Payne as their top one-on-one guy. Speaking of Adams, his career is officially done for. Not surprising, but unfortunate nonetheless. Also, following this finals run, Daniel Rich is going to be done. He hasn't played since round 13 between his whole training block and a hamstring injury. He's listed as being a test for this game, along with Lincoln McCarthy. I would be very surprised if they, if even if he's healthy, if Rich gets included. I just, 
I think it would require an injury to Kadeem Coleman. Yeah, I think that's kind of his role at this point. And, and Coleman's much more than that, too. I mean, maybe Coleman or Darcy Wilmot then. Wilmot's a player that we learned a lot about from this time last year because he made his debut in that elimination final against Richmond last year, and he got a goal, I believe. That's a fun game to, to go back and look at. I think that was a Thursday nighter last year. The big things for Port out of that round one meeting, Todd Marshall and Charlie Dixon were both prominent in terms of marking and set shots. Dixon's not going to be playing in this one. He's still out with the ongoing foot problem for him. We know he's coming back next year, but uh, game on then for Ollie Lord, I guess. He's been the one to take that spot. Uh, I really wish Charlie Dixon was playing. He's one of the earlier players we were introduced to in this sport, and I think just him in big games is fun. Dixon up against Jack Payne. I was really wanting that matchup. Just two big guys going at it like that. I do think Todd Marshall, Jeremy Finlayson, and the like can totally compensate for that absence. It's just, it's just from an entertainment standpoint, it's disappointing. Could make for some more difficult matchups in terms of size as well, though, you got to admit. And then also that round one game was obviously the first glimpse we had of the Butters, Horn Francis, Rosie trio working so well. You saw Ollie Wines get moved more forward because of that. Travis Boak out to the wing. And that's really persisted throughout the year. Wouldn't be shocked, though, if we saw Wines in some more center bounces come finals time. Just some extra support there. He'd been playing better this last month as well. I would imagine also that he'll be the next captain because we know Tom Jonas is retiring after this final series and Wines is already part of the leadership. And I, I would see it being him over Darcy Byrne Jones. Yeah, I would think so. Although, you know, sometimes you like going for the less prominent player to kind of elevate their role or emphasize like, hey, this guy might not be our best guy, but he does a lot of things right and we should all emulate him. Byrne Jones moving from half back to half forward has worked really, really well this year. That actually may be the best positional change that Ken Higley made, keeping up with that pressure role that we saw a little bit from last year, but having that as his one role this year, and that's for, allowed for more prominence for Dan Houston in the back as well. He's an All-Australian. You know what would be a phenomenal troll move? If Dan Houston gets denied after the siren this time, considering his winner and also Alir denying Ali Florent in Sydney. No, I was thinking more about Captain stuff. Captain Willie Rioli. Like, you want to talk about kicking someone while they're down? Do you realize how much of a fuck you to the Eagles that would be? I'm honestly here for it. It's not going to happen, but it would be among the most humorous things we've ever seen. It's like, it's like what, did it, what did we even do to you? Fuck you. What did we even do to you? We held out on you over, the, over those two years. It would be really funny. I mean, I'm... Always in favor of troll captains and considering how it's worked with Toby Green. And I think it's actually the way to go. And and James Sicily to an extent. I don't think Toby Green is that troll of a captain, though. Considering I mean, he was picked, he was. I mean, I guess when he was in their leadership group last year. Though. I know, but it was a, you know, the pick, it seemed like they were trolling. That's, that's more what I'm getting at. Hey, it worked. They're in finals. Very curious what direction the Lions go in with the sub. They've been a team that's been more willing to go with like a taller, slower sub. At times, I don't know how they plan to go about it here. I don't see it being a taller or slower guy here. I don't see Darcy Ford being that kind of pick there. Yeah, especially against a team like Port that tends to go smaller as games go on. If Jasper Fletcher or Devin Robertson are in the 22, they could be a real pick there. The way Robertson's play, though, I'd say, yeah, keep him in and see if you can just keep him around in general rather than him going back west to play for the Eagles. Maybe Kyle Loman could be the sub. Yes, Loman. He's 
he'd been the sub a bit early on, and we're pretty adamant that that he should get more of a role. But I mean, once Dane Zorko goes out, whatever that is, that that's probably going to happen. This is the best chance the Lions have, though, considering where they are age-wise and how they've been building up to this since 2019 when they started that run of largely top four finishes. Now they've got the chance to stay at the GABA through the prelim. I've said for a long time this would be an ideal year for them, just looking at their window. And at the start of the year, they were my pick. Now at the start of the year, I thought, all right, now that they've won one at the G, they're all cured, but apparently they're not. So that's still room for some doubt. They had the one-pointer against Melbourne, but also the Hawthorne loss. Which, look, Hawthorne's a good team, but with how thoroughly they got beat that day, that was that was concerning. I mean, Hawthorne has had Brisbane's number recently, though. That, that includes games in Launceston. Ooh, the free kick game. Oh, God. Was that a game that set a record? Yes, it was. I'd like not to go back and look at that game again, but now I feel like I, I, feel like I might have to. Just like, it, it was one of those games where I was so disgusted that I couldn't look away. Now, one of the fun things about finals footy, as much as I enjoy some of the bad footy, we expect a pretty high level of play. Hopefully not too many blowouts, knock on wood. The other question is, you know, how strict will umpires be in the payment of certain free kicks, especially stuff with contact? Will we see them kind of let things go more? I'm a proponent of just call it the same way the first quarter of the season as you would the last of the grand final. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way with that. I understand that sometimes... Things have to be gradually corrected as a year goes on, and that's totally understandable. But, you know, don't take a hockey approach here. Whereas, you know, you call everything right away at the beginning of the season, and then you could nearly rip someone's helmet off in Game 7 of a Stanley Cup final and get away with it. Yeah, the NHL approach is like, everything's a penalty up through, I don't know, late November, and then starting around, like, February, nothing's called. It's It's really annoying. And then, especially playoff overtime, which... Your playoff hockey overtime is great. It's been compared to doing cocaine and riding a motorcycle out of a helicopter, and that's pretty accurate. But yeah, the fact is you can basically kill someone and not get a penalty. Th- that also applies, though, in after the siren situations. We-, we saw what happened with Port earlier this year with how I think it was Buddy just ramming over Miles Berkman. I'm hoping that we get some great late-game drama, but we don't have a lot of late-game controversy in finals altogether. You know, we don't need a game being decided on a missed call or something. Or, or just, a, we've already had enough of that. And, and, you know, also thinking back to the Tom Lynch thing last year, that's the case. That really high shot that was ruled to be a behind and it's still controversial. Well, if that at least they went to replay. Look, they're going to go to replay far more often. In- yeah, that's one thing that I'm not exactly looking forward to. Just don't do it when it's obvious. Do it when there's some level of doubt. Don't do it when it's obvious. This this shouldn't be like a, a, a controversial statement. I trust David Roden. Not sure if I can trust any of the others. I'll trust the guy who was the goal umpire on the Dan Houston goal because he like, dude took a hanger over him basically and he like got in there and made sure to get the perfect view. That was awesome. One of the unsung heroes of this season. You want to try for some main characters here for uh, finals, Ethan? Oh, was Nick Larky definitely last round, I'd say. Yeah, I'd say round 24 main character has to be Larky. Let's see. I mean, I mean, Ali Shui was awesome. Luke's kid doing all the somersaults. Main character. Trying to figure out which game I want to pick a main character from. You know what? I'm going to go with an open-ended pick here because he could be a main character for playing really well or really poorly. And I'm going to go with Brody Majacek. I feel like he could either kick like four or five goals in a win, or he could kick like one five. 
yeah, his accuracy definitely went down as the season went on, which was pretty surprising. He had a stretch out of five games he played, he kicked two goals, eight, before finding himself a little bit near the end of the season. And thinking back to King's birthday, he kicked one three then. So yeah, that seems like a pick that could be, you know, he could be successful or unsuccessful and could qualify for main character. So that's who I'm going to go with. My pick is whatever stress device Adam Kingsley's using. We've seen it be like different sorts of balls and different sorts of things. His emotions are very visible and I find that enjoyable and just, I feel like they're going to fixate on like whatever he's holding in his hands. I think I've said this before about him. He's going to have a little like mini Zen garden. He's going to be like raking the pebbles around the bonsai tree. Okay, but then we also have to ask, when will the bass drop? There was a Zen garden in that, right? Yes, there there was. One of the actually good, more recent SNL skits. Anyway, that's going to do it for a very irreverent but enjoyable finals preview. Collectively, we're on Twitter at Americans Footy. I'm on Twitter at Castle Media. Brian Harambe's on Instagram at Cafe Brian. And he's currently twitching, so he's dreaming right now. I'm on Twitter at BenjaminHK01, but Brian's what matters here. Seeing him twitch is just really adorable. I have like one or two videos of it. Usually we just like softly put our hand on him or softly pet him when he does that. Sometimes it's fun to just let him do his thing though. I don't I don't I don't want to wake him up. I just want to let him keep vibing.